Amen. I think that's going to be the first song I sing when I get to heaven, when I can actually sing. I, I think that I want that to be the one. I failed to uh, announce as part of the church retreat, and I think it's important that our church body knows this and is able to celebrate if you weren't out at the retreat. We had two baptisms yesterday out at the retreat of two of our young ladies in our junior high student ministry, Kaylin Kerr. Uh, was baptized, and uh, Emma Bryant, and uh, strong, wonderful testimonies. Um, we're just so thankful to God to, uh, to see His work in our church. These young ladies were saved some months or even a couple of years back, and they decided to be obedient to the Lord and baptism by immersion and identifying with the people of God and uh, making their pronouncement public. That makes seven so far this year in our church body. Perhaps some of you still need to be obedient to the Lord in that and uh, follow Him in the waters of baptism. We thank, the God, thank God for it. Let's pray as we just prepare now to hear His Word. Father, Your Word is precious. You are good and You do good. We just ask that uh, our hearts and ears and eyes now would be opened and that You would speak to us wherever we are, whoever we are. You would get and keep our attention and help us to take in the Word of God now by your grace. Amen. Ancient Corinth of the first century was a wealthy and wicked city. A city of about 80,000 people, it is believed. A trading center and hub of commerce in the ancient world the capital city of the region of Achaia. Corinth was known for its sexual immorality and pagan idolatry. You could take Los Angeles, D.C., San Fran, and New York City, ball them all up, and you kind of had Corinth in the first century. There were sailors there. There were merchant marines, businessmen. Corinth was at one time, before the first century, the ancient Uh, the home of the ancient temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Her temple there had 1,000 temple prostitutes. The temple was gone, Aphrodite was gone, but her spirit certainly remained. Prostitutes were not on the back streets of Corinth, they were on Main Street. The typical Corinthian loved power and wealth. They loved the wisdom of man, and they loved sports. Corinth was the host to the biannual Isthmian Games. Corinth was a place of vain glory, greed, gluttony, and vice of every kind. Corinth was the epitome of all that was wrong in the Greek and the Roman culture of the day. They adored human wisdom, they exalted oratory skills, and they worshipped the female body. To Corinthian eyes meant to fornicate. Corinth was so messed up that prostitution was legal and admired and encouraged to prevent adultery. What a great place to preach the gospel. Amen? This is the kind of people Jesus came to save. Not the righteous but sinners like Corinthians. And so Paul did. And God called many who were foolish 
many who were base, many who were weak. And he also called a few who were elite and a few who were wealthy. The Corinthians came to Christ out of open fornication, idolatry, and adultery. There were many who came to Christ who were acting effeminate before they became Christians. There were homosexuals who were saved, thieves, the covetous, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. So it is no surprise that this new church, these infant Christians, would be beset with many problems and many sins. The first of which is a prideful party spirit that developed in Corinth. You see, they loved the wisdom of man and they just kind of saw the apostles as the next greatest philosophers to come along. And so they divided themselves among who they followed and who they liked the best. And this led to division in their ranks and the adulation of man. They would say, not maybe out loud, but at least their spirit in their way of thinking and their way of acting, I am of Paul. Oh, but I am of Apollos, the much greater orator than Paul. Or, oh, I'm of Cephas, one of the original 12 apostles. And then some, perhaps the super spiritual, the super elite of Corinth would say, oh, no, no, I am of Christ. And so they were just mimicking still the culture around them. I am of Aristotle. I am of Plato. I am of Socrates. And so it goes in Corinth. They were infants in Christ and they choked on the meat of the word. They were immature and this immaturity was proven by their jealousy and by their strife with each other. On one hand, they could quickly put the apostles on a pedestal and nearly worship them and just as quickly turn on them and consider Paul even a false, a false apostle. In their own eyes then, they were rich, self-sufficient kings without the apostles. They no longer needed God's spokesman. It gets worse. It gets worse. In the church at Corinth, you had a case of incest. A son-in-law who had his most likely stepmother. Perhaps the father had died. It didn't matter. This was a sin condemned by the law of God and looked down upon and condemned by Roman culture. And there it was being practiced by a church member. And if that wasn't bad enough, the church did nothing about it. No discipline, no movement to correct this sinful behavior. The church... Not only did nothing, they actually boasted, I guess, in forgiveness and grace. And and look how free we are now as Christians. The Corinthians in the church were suing each other. And they were taking their cases before corrupt, deceitful, lying, stealing, cheating unbelievers. They were taking their conflicts before those without any wisdom at all, instead of turning to the saints for mediation and reconciliation. The Corinthian Christians were not willing to be wronged. They took, don't tread on me, to a whole new level. Two times in the letter, Paul had to remind the Corinthian Christians that their bodies were temples of the Holy Spirit and not to be joined to a prostitute. Now, if he had to tell them this twice, what does that imply? That implies that they must have thought of that like maybe Christians of old thought of smoking or 
I don't know, maybe Christians a hundred years from now will think of us watching football. I don't know. (laughs) Apparently, the Corinthians got saved and thought, well, this is just part of our life. It's okay. Paul says, no, it's not okay. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You can't join it with the prostitute. Being selfish and greedy, they grumbled about supporting their ministers and apostles financially. They abused the Lord's Supper as a church. They wouldn't share their food. The rich wouldn't. They'd come to have this love feast meal before the Lord's Supper. And the rich would have their food and their meal. And they would hang out with each other. And the poor would come and have nothing. And the the rich wouldn't share from their abundance. Not only that, they would get drunk before church. Not only that, they would get drunk at church. Before the Lord's table. I mean, these people wrote the book on how to partake in an unworthy manner. Some church women apparently were out of line in Corinth, not walking in proper submission to their husbands and church leaders. They were misusing spiritual gifts out of pride, not love. They used their spiritual gifts for vainglory, not the glory of God. In fact, they had taken the sign gift of tongues and had perverted it beyond recognition. They were mimicking the pagan culture around them with their babbling that was incoherent and meaningless. In pride, they forgot that they needed each other, that they were connected, that they were members of the body of Christ. Their worship services were times of chaos and confusion, but they thought they were being spiritual. And they even fell into the grossest of doctrinal error. On top of all of that, some of them were denying the resurrection of the body. That that could even take place. And therefore, denying the resurrection of Christ. And therefore, denying or getting perilously close to denying the gospel itself. A few months back, before the letter was written to them, they had promised to help the starving Jewish saints in Judea who were experiencing famine. But when the time came to get out the wallet, they suddenly came down with an amnesia. (laughs) And that's just 1 Corinthians. By 2 Corinthians... This church, these people, are exalting false apostles as super apostles, they call them. And they broke Paul's heart by entertaining false charges against him instead of coming to his defense. This is Paul. Paul who spent 18 months among them. Paul who preached the gospel to them. This is their father in Christ. And by the time these false teachers get done with these baby infant Christians at Corinth, they are ready to call Paul the false apostle. And it broke his heart. 2 Corinthians is the most emotional, open book of the Bible. It's the most raw writing of Paul that there is in the New Testament. He is pouring out his heart to these people, seeking reconciliation with them. 2 Corinthians is written just a few months after 1 Corinthians, which tells us that after the many rebukes and teachings and pleadings of 1 Corinthians, that disunity still remains in this church, which tells us that they were slow to repent. Yet, what does Paul call them More than he calls any other church in the New Testament. Holy ones. 
more than the church at Ephesus, more than the church at Thessalonica, more than the church at Rome. He calls the Christians in Corinth saints or holy ones or set apart ones. Eleven times in these two letters, the first and second Corinthians, Paul uses this title to identify them and to describe them. This title, Saint or Holy One, from the book of Acts to the book of Revelation, is used in our New Testaments 60 times. Forty of those by Paul. He is the most prolific user of this title. And so it is significant when he uses it 11 times to the Corinthians. Now, granted, he wrote two letters to them. Granted, there is a lot of chapters there, but it's more than any other church he addressed. Eight times he called the Romans saints or holy ones, like in 1-7 when he said, You are also the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. It's Romans 1-7. To the Ephesian church, he calls them saints nine times. But I think it is significant that the most uses are for the worst church. In fact, it's how he starts addressing them in 1 Corinthians. Will you turn there with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. I want you to see how Paul starts this letter knowing what he knows about this church. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. That in everything you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. How is this going to be possible? Verse 9 God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow, is that not breathtaking? Knowing what you know about these people, knowing what you know about this church, knowing what He's going to begin addressing in verse 10, now I exhort you, brethren... By the name of the Lord, knowing all of that, this is how Paul begins this letter to them. This is how Paul thinks of them. This is how Paul addresses them. This is the identity that they need to be reminded of. You are holy ones. You are holy ones. Look how he begins in verse 2. 
The church of God at Corinth to those who have been sanctified. It's a finished act with continuing results. They have been set apart. When we think of sanctification, it has two aspects. There is the aspect of once for all time, you are sanctified at conversion into Jesus Christ. You are set apart from your practice of sin, from your lifestyle of sin, and you are set apart to God. And this is a finished act, and we can call that having been sanctified. And then that act flows into and begins another that is an ongoing process in your life. That is the process of sanctification or becoming more holy, becoming more like Christ. Paul here is speaking of that initial finished work that they were set apart into the person having been united with the person of Jesus Christ by faith in him alone they are set apart into him and belong to him they are holy ones by calling he goes on holy ones by calling this is so critical that we understand this as we can Continue to think about our identity this morning. He does not say you're holy ones by behavior. They weren't. He does not say you're holy ones by performance. They weren't. They were anything but, right? Anything but holy and set apart from sin in their practice. They are holy ones by calling. This had nothing to do with them and everything to do with God and His effectual, powerful call to them to Christ. They were not made holy by this calling, but pronounced holy by this calling. The calling doesn't make us holy, just as justification doesn't make us holy. It declares us holy, and there's a huge difference. They're not holy in behavior, but they're holy in God's sight, in God's viewpoint. From God's perspective, they are completely set apart from sin. Blameless, spotless, glistening white, sinless, stainless. That's who they are in God's sight and from God's perspective. They have been sanctified in the Holy One Himself. And this is how God sees every believer at all times. From the moment of saving faith and trust in Jesus Christ, from that precise moment forward forever, that's how God sees the believer. Now, becoming holy... And becoming virtuous, a church putting off these vices, right? Vice means a sin that has become a pattern in your life. Virtue is a good characteristic that's become a pattern in your life. So becoming virtuous would be a process. It is a lifelong process. It takes your whole life to make progress in holiness. And so, beloved, see this this morning that saints by calling is the key. They were saints from day one. It's like a child that's adopted. It's like a child that's adopted. That child's got so much to learn about what it's going to mean to be in this family. So much to learn about the love and the provision and the rules and the guidance. There's so much of a relationship to be built, right? But from the moment of adoption, that child is a member of that family. Full-fledged. 
It's like that. From the moment of adoption, that child's identity has been changed, right? His name, her name has been changed. Boy, there's so much misconception on this uh, front of saints, isn't there? (laughs) It's been so perverted and twisted and misunderstood. A saint is not something you become by being super spiritual. It's not the elite Christians among us who live such a godly life that now they become somehow the status of sainthood. A saint is not something the Pope or a church can confer on another person after they've died. Sometimes I wonder if the Pope has even read the Bible. Saints by calling. Holy ones from the beginning. No man can confer this on another individual. This is true from the calling forward. Because those whom he called, he also justified. Romans 8. Those whom he called, he also justified. And that's what we're speaking of then. Is that declaration of righteousness. You trust Christ, in that very moment you become a saint, instantly. I mean, there's instant pudding and then there's instant sainthood. I mean, this is instant. Instant. Now listen, a saint may not always act like a saint, but they're still a saint. A car may not start and it may not run, but it's still a car, right? A child may not act like a loved member of the family, but it's still a loved member of the family. Now, you, it doesn't matter. You can't act in a way that that's no longer true. Can I blow your mind this morning? Even when you're sinning, you're still a saint. You're still a saint. You're still a holy one in God's eyes. Even in the midst of actively sinning. You see, we are sinning saints We're not saintly sinners. We're sinning saints. We are, by definition, by identity, holy ones. So does real life holiness matter then? Does putting off sin and walking in God, does it even matter? Well, of course it matters. That's why Paul writes the rest of the letter. Beginning in verse 10, all the way to the end, he's going to address the sin in the lives of these Christians and call them to a life of obedience and holiness. Of course it matters. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord, Hebrews says. But what Paul is wanting to communicate to these struggling, infantile Christians at Corinth and us everywhere is this. You are this. You are holy. Now let's work together on living like it. Okay? That's discipleship. You are this. Paul says, now I'm going to come alongside you. I'll have some strong words at times. I'll rebuke you at times. I'll exhort you at times. I'll remind you at times. But I want to come alongside you to help you live what you are. Sanctified then, here in verse 1, having been sanctified, that sets us on a path of sanctification always. There are no exceptions. Everyone who has been sanctified is on this path of growing holiness. Called holy are always on this path of becoming holy. There are no exceptions. No one is left out. Eventually, every saint makes progress in saintliness. Every saint becomes perfectly holy, eventually. 
I love this quote. Michael Beck shared this with his group uh, last Tuesday. Perfect holiness is the aim of the saints on earth, and it is the reward of the saints in heaven. Isn't that good? Perfect holiness is our aim now. We're, we're aiming high, and it is our reward then. Just like we learned in 1 Peter, hope. No, holiness leads to hope, and hope begets holiness. So we're in a series asking and answering the question, who am I before God? As a Christian, someone united to Christ, who am I? How does God see me? How does God identify me? Three weeks ago, we saw, number one, that we are God's loved one. We are beloved. Sixty-something times in the New Testament, we are called beloved. And then last week, we saw that we are God's child. You are a son or daughter of the Lord Almighty, the Scripture says, if you are united to Christ. Today, we are God's holy one. There's one verse that uses this word, and it calls us the Lord's holy ones. That is so precious. But you know, too often, we are like the Corinthians, and we identify ourselves by something in the past, like they may have been tempted to do as they came out of so much sin. We do this in so many different ways. We We find our highest identity, not in beloved child of God and Holy One, but something in our past. Like, especially in these parts, I'm a native-born, what do we say? Fill in the blank? Texan. I mean, there's Texans and then there's native-born Texans. And so that's how people identify themselves. That's who I am by something that simply happened in the past because certain lines of the state were drawn in a certain place. Some people would identify themselves from where they graduated college or where they played college ball, like I am an Aggie. Right? They, they will use that as a way to identify who they are. I've always wondered, why doesn't anybody ever identify themselves from where they graduated junior high? Anybody ever wear a junior high shirt? Some will identify themselves from their past military service. I am a Marine. Once a Marine, always a Marine. That's who I am. Or a past job. I'm a retired CEO of XYZ company. Or a past loss. Who are you? I am an orphan. Who are you? I am a widow. That's how I identify myself. Some past loss or or something Even worse, like a past event as a victim. So many identify themselves with the victim card, a a victim status. This is how they primarily see themselves in this world. I I am a rape victim. I am a victim of domestic violence. I am a victim of assault. Some will identify themselves with a past diagnosis. Or some disability. I am a cancer survivor. I am a paraplegic. I am bipolar. I am manic depressive. Some label, some disability, some diagnosis. And this is how they identify themselves. Some will identify themselves with a past sin or crime or addiction. Language like this. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm a registered sexual predator. I'm an ex-con. This is not your identity before God if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. 
That is a trap, a pit, and a snare of the devil that you got to climb out of and walk away from. It is time to move on. It is time to go forward in your life and not live in the past with some past event, whether good or bad, as the primary way that you identify yourself because that's not how the God of the universe identifies you. The series title, beloved, is not who was I, (laughs) it's who am I right now, today, this moment. Who am I? Beloved, child of God, and a holy one in His sight. That's who you are. Listen, saints are not defined by sins. Saints are not defined by sins. We're not even defined by that sin while we're committing that sin. And it's knowing who you are that will get you out of that sin. It's knowing who you are that will prevent that sin from happening. It's knowing who you are that even after you've stained your garment, you will be able to get up and move on and move forward because you'll say, that is not who I am. I'm a holy one. Hey, let's not be like those ain'ts. You remember the ain'ts? Back in the day, these were the New Orleans Saints fans who were embarrassed to be so. Remember those guys? They went to the games, they put, they put paper bags over their heads, and they cut little, little circles out for their eyes. And they put ain'ts on the front of it, because they were so embarrassed by the saints. And yet, this is how so many Christians are living their life. They're living their life like an ain't. They, they, they forget, not an ant, an ain't. They have forgotten who they are, Right? Bless his heart, Kyle Ingram came up to me yesterday. He's a Texan fan. He says, he says what, what the Texans, he said, we've been rebuilding since 2002. That's, like, <laughs> that's when the Texans started, if you didn't know that. And he, he brought this up yesterday. He said, I want to get, he said, do you have any extra paper bags around your house? Because I'm kind of needing one right now. No, we are defined by our calling from God. I want you to just think about this 60 times. 60 times in the New Testament, you are called a holy one. That's a big number. We are defined by God, not by the devil. He defined us until God took us away from him. And now he no longer defines us. To the church of God, which is at Corinth and Kerrville and everywhere else, to those who have been set apart in Christ Jesus, who are holy ones by calling. And what is the very nature of a holy one? Who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is an expression of saving faith. That sounds like Romans 10, doesn't it? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what saints do. That's who we are. I want to suggest four ways as we close that you can use your new identity among multitudes of ways. Four ways to use your new identity to apply this identity to your day-to-day life. Number one, you and I, we need to be careful how we describe each other. We need to be careful when we're thinking about each other or talking to each other or mostly when we're talking about each other with someone else. We need to be very careful how we describe each other. There is a huge difference between 
this person lied to me, and this person is a liar. Don't call a saint a liar. They're a holy one. A holy one who may be lying. There's a big difference in saying this person committed adultery and this person is an adulterer. We got to be very careful how we talk about and describe each other because we are all the Lord's holy ones. The Lord's holy ones. We don't talk down about one of His holy ones. That doesn't minimize or ignore or uh, rationalize anyone's sin. There's just a huge difference between being a jerk and acting like a jerk. So, you know, in, in marriage, it's very helpful. We don't ever want to say, you are a jerk. We want to say, well, we probably won't even say this, but, <laughs> right? If you're going to, say, you're acting like, you're acting like. You're a holy one, but right now you're acting like something else. That leads us to number two. Make the saints objects of special care. As I studied this word, and there's just tons of uses we're not even looking at, obviously, out of the 60. What I kept seeing over and over again was the uses of the word saint was in a context of serving the saints, caring for the saints, supporting the saints, holding up the saints. Over and over you find things that were very practical when you come to this word, like the saints need to be the objects of benevolent care and food. And if a saint is suffering, you need to rush to their relief and their aid because they're saints. It reminds me of the verse where Paul said, do good to all men, but especially the household of faith. I think too many in the church have it kind of backwards. We're too busy trying to feed the whole world, and we might be ignoring and missing the hungry saints among us. It starts with the family, folks. We take care of ourselves first, and then we move out to the world. Do good to all men, but especially the household of faith. The saints are to be the objects, then, of special care and support and love and tenderness. Because saints are special. Saints are special, and they must be treated as such. They belong to God. They are His holy ones. Number three, just flowing right out of number two then, love all saints regardless of their saintliness. Oh, we need to hear this, don't we? Love all saints regardless of their particular level at any given moment of sanctification. Can I remind you this morning that saints, all of them, are spiritual equals? None are more holy in position than another. All saints are worthy of equal love. All saints are worthy of equal adoration, properly shown, affirmation, regardless of their saintliness. Listen carefully. No matter how low a true believer sinks... God is still with them. God still loves them. And God will confirm them to the end because He's faithful. They're not faithful. He's faithful. Verse 9. 
See, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 1 shows us how we must think of all true Christians, no matter how far they sink. We say to ourselves, verse 8, they will be confirmed to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to love them no matter their level of saintliness. Doesn't mean we don't confront, don't rebuke, don't have church discipline. All of those things are love. All of those things are love in action when done right and with the right motive. So love all the saints equally because they're equally holy in God's eyes. And then finally, number four, and this is really the application every week in this series, is we must embrace our identity. We must lay hold of our true identity before God. And so today I want you to embrace your holiness, your your identity as holy before God. This is so important because all of the real holiness in your life will come from this. Now, self-righteousness and Phariseeism and legalism doesn't come from this. But the basis of true holiness is always who, I am, who am I at my core? What's my starting point? What's my home base? All holiness of life comes from holiness of position. Position before practice. Obey God this week not to become a saint, but because you are a saint. And I believe this is really the difference between law and gospel. And even if you're a Christian, you need to constantly be hearing the difference between the two. Law without grace calls mankind to holiness in his own effort and then condemns him when he falls short. The gospel of grace calls believers to holiness in the power of the cross and in the power of the Holy Spirit and then extends forgiveness when you fall short. So when we sin, while we're sinning, after we've sinned, the Holy One still sees us as holy. And on the basis of that, we can get up and we can move forward. And we can take time to be holy. 